The parable of the Good Samaritan is probably one of the most famous in the Gospel of Luke, the most uh, well-known. And we have to look at this parable through two lenses. And the first is obvious, that Jesus is teaching us and defining for us how to love our neighbor and who our neighbor is. But the second is actually more important because there's a question prior to Jesus giving this parable of how do I inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus is showing us the gospel through the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is the Good Samaritan ultimately? It's Jesus who rescues us from our sins. So we have a lawyer coming to Jesus with this question in verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So I got a question for you. How do you make lawyers smile? You say, fees, instead of cheese, right? I I just felt like I had to have a lawyer joke, but just crashed and burned, didn't it? So... (laughs) So here's this lawyer. And honestly, you know, my perspective of of lawyers has changed a little bit in the last couple years. Christian lawyers that are out fighting for religious liberty has become a huge thing in our country. And there's some really brave lawyers that have taken on some some difficult cases. So I guess lawyers can be born again. It is possible. (laughs) So this lawyer, he, he stands up and he tests the Lord. He tests Jesus. So that's, that's his motivation as he wants to trap Jesus. And what's interesting about lawyers at this time is they would be experts in the law. They would be experts in studying the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, the Torah. And he wants to know, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And that, that's so important to understand the question and his mindset is there must be something that I can do in order to earn or deserve salvation. And I think a lot of us come with that same presupposition that I can do something in order to inherit eternal life. If I'm a good enough person, then God's going to let me into heaven. I think if you were going to ask a lot of Americans that believe in God, you know, not those that are atheists, but those that believe in God, well, how do you think you're going to go to heaven? Well, by being a good person. Well, what defines a, a good person? And we're going to see through this parable and through the standard of the law that we can't save ourselves, that we need God's grace, that we need someone to to rescue us and save us. So verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Jesus asking the question, well, what's written in the law and what's your understanding of it? Jesus as the master teacher ask great questions. As you study the life of Christ, just look at all of the questions that he would ask. And, and he brings a question back to the lawyer. In verse 27, so he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Jews know it as the Shema. It's one of the most dear sections of scripture uh, to them. This is God's standard. If we're going to try to inherit eternal life based on what we do, then we have to love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength, everything inside of us loving the Lord totally and perfectly. The standard of the law is perfection. It is theoretically possible for you to earn salvation based on your own works, you have to be perfect. The problem is it's unattainable. The problem is we can't meet that, that standard. 
The second part of the Shema, and love your neighbor as yourself. We care for ourselves. We care for our needs. I, I make sure that I get three meals a day at least, right? Get sleep and get clothes. And God has wired us that way to appropriately care for ourselves. And so the way that you care for yourself, care for your neighbor in that same way. Love your neighbor as yourself. In verse 28, and he said to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. Jesus says, you got it. You understand the standard. If you do this, you will live. Now, it would be interesting at this point if the lawyer, if he would be humbled and realize, man, I can't do this. Are you humbled by that, that standard? Are you at that place of going, man, I can't love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I can't love my neighbor as myself all of the time to the point of, of perfection. But the attitude of the lawyer is this, but he wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He wants to, to justify himself. I think when we fall into this place of, of legalism, this mindset of what can I do to inherit the kingdom of God, it does lead to us trying to justify ourselves. Legalism elevates the view of ourselves and diminishes our view of God. It elevates my ability, quote unquote, to be able to stand before a holy God and it diminishes God's character. So he asked the question, well, who really is my neighbor? If I have to love my neighbor as myself, who is my neighbor? It's interesting, it seems that this lawyer gives him the pa himself the pass on the first commandment. That first commandment of loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's like, I do that pretty well. So let's focus on, well, how about loving your neighbor as yourself? So Jesus then goes into the parable. Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is a 3,000-foot descent, and it's very windy, and it's very curvy, and it's very remote. There's still a dirt road that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho that remains dangerous uh, to this day and is still uh, extremely remote. So this guy's traveling on this road, and he gets robbed. The thieves come, and they beat him up brutally. They strip him of his clothes. They leave him naked, and he's half dead. He He's really fighting for his life. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. A certain priest. The priest sees the man, sees him in need, turns the other way, and just walks by. Why did the priest do that? You would expect the priest to love his neighbor. The priest is the teacher of the law. He's, he's the pastor, if you would. You, you'd expect the, the pastor, the priest, uh, to care, but, but he doesn't. Was it maybe Numbers 19 that was in his mind that if he touched a dead body, he'd be unclean for seven days and couldn't do temple ministry? Bad excuse. Did he come up with some type of religious excuse that kept him? Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place came and looked and passed by the other side. Priests were descendants of Aaron, and Levites were descendants of Levi, 
And Levites were the assistant to the priests. So you have the priest who came first, and then a little bit later, you have a Levite that comes by. He's the assistant to the priest, and he does the exact same thing. He doesn't stop, and he doesn't care. David Guzik, in his commentary, writes some of the possible excuses that could have been in their mind. This road is too dangerous for me to stop and help the man. He might be a decoy for an ambush. I got to get to the temple and perform my service for the Lord. I've got to get home to my family. Someone really should help that man. Have you ever thought that before? You know? Hey, somebody really should, should help them. If I'm going to serve in the temple, I can't get my clothes bloody. I don't know first aid. It's a hopeless case. I'm only one person. The job is too big. I can pray for him. That's nice. I bet the man really appreciates that. I, I, I can pray for him. He brought it on himself. He could, should have never been on such a dangerous road. He never asked for help. Charles Spurgeon says this, I never knew a man refuse to help the poor who failed to give at least one admirable excuse. So when we come across a need, we come across a person in need, and when we choose not to help, we usually come up with an admirable excuse, don't we? Why does Jesus point out a priest and a Levite? I think Jesus is showing the deadness of this religious system that the lawyer was a part of. They were moralists. They were squeaky clean on the outside. They would tithe from the mint in their garden, their herbs. Could you imagine growing herbs and going, okay, I got to make sure to tithe on my, my herbs? If you were to think of godly people, you would think of the scribes and the Pharisee and, and this lawyer, this religious system, but it was dead. Jesus spoke out in such strong rebuke to the priest and the Levite and the scribes and, and the Pharisees. And it's evident in the fact that there's a lack of love. There's a quote-unquote love for God that doesn't result in a love for the neighbor. And so Jesus is calling this out by indicting the, the Levite and the priest. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. A certain Samaritan. Now, who are the Samaritans? Samaritans are those in northern Israel, and in 722 BC, long before the life of Christ, they were taken captivity by the Assyrians because of their idolatry. The Assyrians took some Israelites out, but they left some Israelites in the northern part of Israel, but then they brought in people from other nations, and they intermarried, and you have a new people group that developed, and they're Samaritans, part Jewish, but also part other ethnicities of different parts of the world. Well, the rest of the Jews, the other two tribes, they eventually got into captivity as well to Babylon in 586 BC. God brought them back to the land 70 years later. And there was then, from that point on, this division between the Samaritans and the Jews to the point where Jews would not travel from Jerusalem to the Sea of Galilee by going through Samaria. When you look on a map, that was the most direct route, but they would go around Samaria. Jesus, however, was different. Remember John 4? He said he must go through Samaria. And he ministered to the Samaritan woman that was at the well. So this man is a Samaritan, and he would be despised by the Jews. The Jews looked down on Gentiles and even more so on 
Samaritans. So the Samaritan, he's journeying, and he sees the man, and he has a different response. He has a, a different reaction, and that was one of compassion. Do you remember last week in our study when Jesus asked us to pray that he would raise up laborers for the harvest? What motivated Jesus to ask us to pray for that? And ultimately, his desire to send laborers into the harvest. The end of Matthew 9 tells us that Jesus saw the multitude with compassion. He saw them with sheep without a shepherd. And here, the compassion of the Samaritan ultimately points to the compassion of of Jesus Christ. So we think of this first lesson with the the Good Samaritan, and it's loving our neighbor as ourself. Hopefully it's compassion that moves us to love. Hopefully we try to see that people are created by God, they're created in his image, that Jesus loved them, that he died for them, that they may not know Christ as their savior, are struggling in their relationship with Christ, and to see that person in need and say, I'm going to respond to to that need. The opportunity to share the gospel oftentimes comes by genuinely loving and caring for someone, not just passing by. I think our culture, we've gotten really calloused. Have you ever had this feeling, like if something really bad happened, I don't know if anybody would stop and help? You know, if I was in a dangerous situation, would anybody put their life at risk to to stop and help? And hopefully, like, we've answered that question in our heart and our mind that says, I'm not going to pass a need by. There's those obvious needs that happen, but then there's also some needs that are a little more hidden, aren't they? There's those wounds that people carry internally that's easy to to pass by. And it's the compassion of Christ that wakes us up to those needs around us. So verse 34, so he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. He bandaged his wounds. The the love and the care of this Samaritan, that that he comes and, and bandages his wounds. And Christ comes and rescues us. Instead of us being able to to save ourselves, we're lost. We're we're dead in our sins. We're we're wounded in our sins. And Christ comes and serves us to the point where he goes to the cross for us. The oil and the wine, the the oil bringing cleansing, the the wine providing some relief from, from the pain. Oil in the scripture represents the Holy Spirit. Wine represents the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus bringing oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and took him to the inn. Jesus brings us not to an inn, but brings us to heaven through his grace and through his mercy, providing a need that we can't provide on our own. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So he puts up the money. He says, here's two denarii, and when I come back, I'm going to foot the bill. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Jesus, as the good Samaritan, he's the one who pays the bill. It's at his expense. The acronym for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. The only reason we'll be in heaven is because Christ paid the bill. The only reason that we're saved is not through our works, but because of the finished work of of Jesus Christ. And he said, 
He who showed mercy on him, then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. The Samaritan was an outcast. Jesus was an outcast. Jesus wasn't part of the religious system. Is there any point where this lawyer gets humbled? Where he goes, really, loving my neighbor is loving my enemy? I can't stand the Samaritans. Really, you're calling me to do this? I need a savior. I need someone to rescue me. So let's pause for just a moment and pray that God gives us clarity on the parable of the Good Samaritan. As first, we've got to understand that Jesus is talking to a lawyer that thought he could save himself. And ultimately, I think Jesus is pointing him to himself, that he's the Good Samaritan that rescues us from our sins. And for us to understand, man, I am the one that's in the ditch because of my sin, and I need Jesus to rescue me. Now, having understood that, and being introduced to God's grace, then God calls us to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Deuteronomy 6 doesn't go away. To love our neighbor as ourself. But the motivation's completely different. We're not trying to earn or deserve salvation. God's not an employer. We're not saying, if I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love my neighbor as myself, then I'm going to be saved. I have to stop and help this person in order to be saved. Instead, we go, man, I want to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength because I'm saved, because God has rescued me, because he's forgiven me of his sins, because Christ has paid the price. I want to stop and love on this person and meet this need because of what Christ has done in my life. And I want to suggest to you that grace is a far greater motivator than the law. Yeah. How have you found the law to really move you into a loving relationship with God? How have you found the law to move you into loving our community and seeing people with compassion? It doesn't go very far. But when God gets a hold of your life by grace, then it moves us to a place of saying, Lord, I really desire to love you and, and to serve. I think there's a great need in our community right now. There's so many things happening. I, it's very evident and for the Holy Spirit to get a hold of our hearts and lives, to understand God's grace and start to give it away, to see people with compassion and to not turn away and to love and to, to meet needs. Well, let's shift gears. Let's focus on these two sisters, Mary and Martha. Now, it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. We know from the other gospels that this is Bethany. Two miles east of Jerusalem, Jesus is close friends with Mary and Martha. Lazarus, their brother, passed away. Jesus rose him from the dead. This is a really important family to Christ. Jesus comes to this village on his way to Jerusalem, and Martha welcomes him into her house. Now, this stood out to me in studying this week is that it was Martha's house. Scripture calls it Martha's house. And there's a lot of pressure when you're having people into your home, isn't there? Can you imagine having Jesus into your house for, for a meal? And the pressure that you would feel for everything to just be exactly perfect? And Jesus also came with a motley crew with his disciples, right? So you got to feed those knuckleheads too. And this is, this is a lot of food to be able to uh, prepare. So this year I decided that I wanted to take on cooking Thanksgiving uh, dinner and 
Amber's just been so gracious to always do that, even if we're going to families. She, she takes stuff, and, and I was like, babe, just take a year off, and, and I'll do uh, Thanksgiving. Man, big mistake, right? <laughs> I was like, I, I'll be honest, I felt so much pressure, and it wasn't because Amber was putting pressure on me, or the, the kids were putting pressure on me, but it's like, man, this is, this is Thanksgiving, and my parents came down from Denver, so it's like, man, I hope mom thinks it's decent as well, right? And it's so hard to make sure that everything's hot at the same time. Like that, I think that's the hardest thing with Thanksgiving dinner. And I, I was all stressed about it and all those things and definitely wasn't near as good as Amber's. And so I'm sure that Martha's feeling all of this. Like I welcome Jesus into my home and I want to do it right and I, I want to do it, do it well. And she did the right thing, opening up her home to Jesus. Like that, that would be God's heart for all of us. Of Jesus, you come hang out here. I want you to be welcome here. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his words. Mary, she decides that she's going to enjoy sitting at the feet of Jesus and hearing Jesus teach. As Christ's custom, when he would go from place to place, he'd share truth. He'd share about the Father. And he's hanging out and he's sharing about the, the glory of the kingdom. And Mary's just hanging on every word. And those were sweet times with the Lord, isn't it? When we choose to sit at the feet of Jesus, when we turn off the other distractions, maybe it's early in the morning or late at night or get some time in the middle of the afternoon and be still and and know that he's God, read the scriptures, enter into worship, maybe put on a a podcast or his teaching and God's speaking to you through it. Those times when we come in the sanctuary and we're worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth and we're hearing Christ's words, there's really nothing better than hearing the voice of God, hearing the voice of Jesus, of sitting at his feet. The idea of sitting at his feet is that we're taking the position of learning. Jesus, I'm learning from you. Jesus, I'm, I'm submitting to you. I'm seeking you for a relationship. I'm seeking you for direction. So that's what, what Mary's doing. But Martha was distracted with much serving. So it's not that the serving is bad, it's the fact that Martha complicated it, and she distracted with with much serving. It didn't have to be as complicated as as she was was making it. And I think we find ourselves in this place a, a lot of times. There's the right motivation to serve, but we make it more complicated than the Lord desires. It's like, okay, I'm teaching the second graders. This is going to be the best teaching that they have ever heard. Like in the history of the church, I'm, I'm just going to bring it to these second graders, right? Or here's this need like we just met, talked about with the Good Samaritan. And, and I'm going to meet this need to the nines. And I'm just going to go full force. And, and before we know it, we've complicated it. And we've distracted ourselves with, with many things. And oftentimes in serving the Lord, it can lead to burnout because I wonder how many times we have placed a yoke upon ourselves that Jesus hasn't placed upon us. Jesus hasn't asked us to do that. We're we're doing things that Jesus hasn't asked us to do. Martha's distracted herself with much serving, and Jesus hasn't asked her to do that. And Christ, he invites us into his yoke. He says, if you're weary and heavy laden, do you feel weary and, and heavy laden this morning? Come to Jesus, learn of him, take his yoke. What's a yoke? It was 
for oxen. They would be linked up together with this wooden yoke. And Christ is inviting us to come into his yoke. And he says his burden is light and his burden is, is easy. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Have you ever been ratted out to the boss? <laughs> this is the ultimate rat out. It doesn't get any worse than this. She goes right to Jesus. She doesn't go to her sister Mary. She could have easily said, hey, Mary, come here. And they just have it out in the kitchen. She's like, what in the world are you doing? You're leaving me hanging here. But instead, she goes to the Lord. And Mary's sitting there, right? She's like, oh, no, here we go. And, man, the dynamics between sisters, it's real, right? It's, it, it's beautiful and, and intense. And she says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? This is the double indictment. <laughs> this is the indictment on Jesus Jesus, you didn't make her serve. Don't you get frustrated when Jesus doesn't make people do what you want them to do? It's like, what's going on, Lord? Like, you saw me in here just slaving away in the kitchen, and you see Mary just kicking back, hearing your words at your feet. You should have asked her to, to serve. And when we get to this place where we're overwhelmed and we're distracted, this isn't sinful things. They're, they're good things but it's not what God has called us to do, we can start to see the Lord in the, the wrong light. Like, man, the Lord doesn't care for me. The Lord has, has let me down in this. And then also the indictment to her sister as well, that her sister didn't come and help. So she's very frustrated at, at this point. This has to be building in her heart and mind, don't you think? So she's probably in there making deviled eggs and she's like, man, the devil is in the eggs. Like, this, this is terrible. This is not going the way that I planned for it to go. And just frustrated and frustrated and frustrated, and then finally, boom, it, it comes out. The response of Christ is probably not the one that she was expecting. I think she was expecting for her sister to get set straight, right? Like, Mary's going to get some humble pie. She's going to get her can in the kitchen and start helping me out, and this is going to be good. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. When your name's called twice, you need to pay attention, right? <laughs> Jesus says, Martha, Martha. I don't think he's angry with her. He loves her. He cares for her. And said, Martha, Martha, why are you so stressed out? Why, why are you at this place where you're, you're so frustrated? You're worried and troubled about many things. Don't you think this is timely for us, the, the first Sunday in December? Do you already feel a weight on your shoulders because it's December? Have you had that conversation of all the Christmas parties you're supposed to be at and the Christmas gifts and the Christmas budget? And Have you ever gotten to the end of Christmas and you're like, that just about killed me, you know? Ho, 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 Merry Christmas, right? <laughs> And we're the ones that advocate to keep Christ in Christmas. We want it to be about Jesus. We want to enjoy his gift and enjoy uh, family members. And it, could it be this is a good time to go, you know, I'm worried and troubled about many things related to, to Christmas. And it's time to simplify. Time to simplify the shopping list a little bit. Maybe pray through the Christmas gatherings. What ones am I 
supposed to, to go to? Am I doing things out of obligation? Am I able to tell family no when, when I need to? To make sure that we have time to be able to sit at the feet of Jesus. But church, brothers and sisters in Christ, this goes a lot deeper than Christmas, doesn't it? Christmas is kind of the apex of it, but we go through our lives and we're worried and we're troubled about many things, right? And those things are keeping us from sitting at the feet of Jesus and and hearing his words. I'd encourage you to make a list. What am I worried and troubled about? What are the four or five things that tend to get you worried and troubled? I I took some time to write those things down, and, and my mind seems to go back to four or five things that I get worried and I get troubled about, but then I can get distracted to the point where it's really difficult to sit at the feet of Jesus. Verse 42, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. When Jesus says one thing, don't you think we should pay attention? When the creator of the universe, the lover of our soul says, hey, this, this one thing, Martha, just, just one thing is, is needed. It's not wrong for you to serve, but the attitude in which you're serving is wrong. And this is the one thing that you need to lay hold of. This is the, the one part that is needed, and, and Mary has chosen the good part. Mary has chosen what I desire is, is for you to be still, to listen to my words, to be in relationship with me. God wants our work, our service, to flow out of our worship. God's not just simply desiring that we would be busy bees in his kingdom. He wants us to serve, but he wants that service to come from a place of, of relationship. I struggle with getting distracted. It's, it's easy for me to be in a place where I'm, I'm distracted. I find it even more difficult in the world that we live in with our phones. You know, when you get a text and you're like, oh, I'll just go check the sports or Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace, and before you know it, your mind is just all over the place. And to be able to say, Lord, help me to If I'm going to do one thing, if I'm going to do one thing today, it's have some time at the feet of Jesus. Have you found that God can do a lot in five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes? It doesn't have to be an hour. If it's an hour, great. It doesn't have to be an hour and a half. But to say, there's going to be a point in my day where I'm simply going to be still and know that he's God. I'm going to open up the scriptures and allow God to speak to me. He's my good shepherd. I want, to, I want to hear his voice. I want to take a few moments to, to enter into to worship. I'm going to choose the posture of Mary and let, it, let everything flow from that place. Wes Stafford, who led Compassion International Ministry here in town for, for years, uh, shares about his life and his busy years of ministry. He's now uh, retired. Is he would start every day just with 30 minutes of silence in the dark, sitting in his living room, waiting upon the Lord. That's, a, that's an awesome way to start the day, isn't it? Just, just get up early, be still before the Lord, let God speak to you, let God speak to me. However God leads us in our relationship with him, what Jesus says is it's the good part and it can't be taken away. Service can be taken away. That meal can be taken away. That meal's going to be consumed and, and eaten. 
But that time away, that time alone with Jesus, no one can take that from us. We're going to go deeper into this on Wednesday night because this phrase, one thing, is also used by David in Psalms 27, and it's used by Paul in Philippians chapter 3, and really God giving us clarity on what, what's the one thing. Isn't that nice that Jesus gives us one thing? Seek first the kingdom of God, and all of these things will be added unto you. I want to make this practical uh, this morning, as we're going to take an exercise in being still. I'm going to read the first 10, 11 verses of Psalms 46, and then we're going to be still as a congregation and know that he's God for two minutes, 120 seconds. I'm going to watch the clock. It'll probably be the longest two minutes of your life. But this is my hope, and this is my intent, is, is that we are still, and we let go of some of the distractions that we would recognize that he's God, and that we would let go of some of those things that worry us, some of those things that, that trouble us, that we're distracted with, with many things. So if you feel comfortable, please just close your eyes and begin to wait upon the Lord. Listen to Psalms 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place, the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord of Jacob is our refuge. Come behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolation in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God and I'll be exalted among the nations and I'll be exalted in the earth. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now and so many times we're just like Martha, distracted and worried and troubled with many things. And we want to take a, a few minutes, a few moments, and be still and know that you're God. And would you be gracious to speak to us?
Would you stand with me and let's, let's pray together. Father, we do acknowledge that you're God of our lives, that you're sovereign, that you're, you're God over the nations, that you're in control, that you, you rule and reign, and we worship you. We want to go deeper in you. We thank you that you're our good Samaritan, that you rescue us from our sin, and Lord, would you melt our hearts? Would you give us compassion for one another, for our community?